0: Bible Church on the web at wagp.net Good morning and welcome to the Light 88.7 FM Bible Live a live radio call in with Dr. Carl Brogi Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort South Carolina and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show
1: yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome questions or concerns you have as you've been studying God's word, maybe a particular challenge you're facing in life or... Some question that you have as you've been studying God's Word. If we can help, we'll do our best by the grace of God. All you need to do is pick up the phone and call us again locally. The number is 525 1859. That's area code 843 525 1859. We also have a toll-free number for those listening outside of the area through the Internet. In other states, that number is 877-WAGP-980. 877, our call letters, WAGP-980. will get you through as well. Some people email us directly into the studio, and you can do so at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. TBL at net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. Rick, as always, uh, the lines have been ringing, and we welcome people's questions. Let's go to our first caller this morning.
0: Indeed. Thanks for holding. Caller, you're on the air.
1: Thank you. Good morning, Carl and Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Carl, my question is about um, Jesus' unique qualification to be Messiah because um, the Messiah had to come through the line of David,
0: and um, all of David's other descendants who were qualified to be king were disqualified because of the curse on Jehoiakim. And my question is, how do uh, people of the Jewish faith who are still looking for a Messiah
1: deal with this? That's a great question. Um, I preached a message one time on Matthew 1 on the genealogy of Christ. And of course, as you read through that genealogy, you come to an individual by the name of Jeconiah, and uh, he has a curse on him. And so... You know when someone reads that, especially an orthodox jew uh, who takes the scripture seriously, they have to discern well how is it going to happen, how is it going to happen through the line of David? And a lot of them don't a- really have answers, and the only answer I can give in reference as to why they don't have answers is really twofold. One, Second 2 Corinthians Corinthians 4, four, in whose case the God of this world, small g, they are in reference to the evil one, in whose case the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So that's certainly a major reason. Uh, Probably the single biggest reason is the one that Paul gives in the national section of the book of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And in that section of Scripture, Paul deals with in the ninth chapter with the election of Israel, in chapter ten the rejection of Israel, and in chapter eleven the future restoration of Israel. And in ten one, he says, "My heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation." He's talking about uh, his Jewish brothers, uh, those who are physically descended uh, from Abraham. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. But not in accordance with knowledge. And there's many people like that today. People say, oh, they're so sincere, they're so zealous, Um, they must be accepted of the Lord. But it's not true just of Jewish people, but Gentiles as well, who have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And so. There are Jewish people today, much like scores of Gentiles, who are trying to achieve a righteousness on their own through the deeds and the works that they perform rather than the righteousness that comes on the basis of faith through Messiah. So because of that, what it boils down to is a lot of Jewish people, in terms of their view of Messiah, is not that of a suffering servant who serves as a substitute to die and pay for sin— uh, but as one who is a ruler, who is victorious, who reigns. And they don't know how to put it together with uh, Jeconiah. They do know from 2 Samuel 7 that God made a promise to King David that Messiah would come via his line. And of course, um, there's a lot of different ways that that could happen. And so you have two key genealogies in the New Testament. One in Matthew 1 that comes through Joseph's genealogy showing that Jesus had a legal right to the throne but then you have another genealogy in Luke 3 that really is through Mary and so when you get to Nathan uh, the names switch because it follows through Mary who is also the household of David so there was actually a number of different ways a Jew recognizes that God could fulfill this promise but the fact that the New Testament highlights it 's something that they don 't really recognize as scripture, obviously um, is significant for us as Christians, but not necessarily for them as Jews. but they do believe that God can do it he, they just don 't know how they do know that God keeps his word second corinthians second uh, Samuel seven uh, namely that Uh, God would seat someone on David's throne. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, So there's a promise there given here in the Davidic covenant that they believe will be fulfilled. But because there's a hardening of their hearts, as the 11th chapter of Romans teaches, because there's a blinding of their eyes, as an, a number of passages indicate, because there's um a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, because they 're not looking for a messiah who 's going to become a substitute, and so for us, when we read um, Matthew one, people who are looking for a messiah who 's not just a political ruler but a substitute who will die and suffer as God's suffering servant. It jumped out at us, and it did for many Jews in the first century. And so many Jews were converted. And so there are four books in the New Testament that are written exclusively to a Jewish audience, like the book of Hebrews, for instance, uh, Jewish Christians. And so when they came across, you know, Matthew 1, and Matthew, among other reasons, is really demonstrating. There are four Gospels, and they're each written with a different audience in mind. And Matthew's gospel is written primarily to Jewish people, who uh, are prese- who where Christ is presented as the Son of David. Uh, Mark's written with a different view to present Christ as the servant of Jehovah. Luke is the Son of Man to Gentile audience, and John, kind of the universal gospel, is the Son of God. So, a Jewish person. Uh, wants to make sure that Jesus has the right credentials. And so that that would jump out at a Jew who is not seeking a righteousness of their own, who believed that Messiah would first have to come to die on a cross and to pay for sin, or at least shed his blood. They may not have put it all together, but they, they knew that he would come as a substitute as Isaiah had prophesied and would pay for sin. So a Jew who's looking through that lens taking the Scripture literally at face value, would um, be moved by Matthew's argument showing that Jesus is indeed the son of David, and uh, as he presents Christ as king, that he is indeed Israel's king. So anyway, um, there's a lot there, a lot to think about, but I hope that helps. Let's go to our next caller question. All
0: right, indeed. Our next caller would like to know, um, would actually like you from Scripture... um Give scripture, rather, from the New Testament that explains that seafood and all meats are okay for a Christian to eat?
1: Well, there are a couple of key passages in the Word of God that deal with the subject of clean and unclean meats. Remember, under the Old Covenant, God distinguishes His people largely externally. Under the New Covenant, God distinguishes His people, first and foremost, internally through the work of the Holy Spirit. So, there were certain um, hairstyles, certain clothing styles, certain uh, dietary demands that God put on the Jewish people to set them apart as a peculiar people. And it's that peculiarness that becomes a platform potentially to share the one true living God. So, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14 are the two central passages that deal with what a Jew can and cannot eat. Under the New Covenant, God declares all meats clean. And there's a couple of passages that deal with that. One, uh, Romans 14 and there's some principles here in the 14th chapter that Paul deals with. He's dealing with in the context of, okay, God has declared all meats clean, but should you necessarily exercise that freedom among brothers who are weak in conscience, who don't understand they have that freedom, and how should you exercise sensitivity so you don't tear the body of Christ down, but build the body of Christ up? And so there's a lot that you could apply in other realms today, but that certainly would be a major passage where Paul makes it very clear that, um, well, he says, one man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and so on and so forth. So Paul argues that, yes, you can eat anything. Now, the exception, of course, that God gives in the book of Acts is that you can't drink blood, and that that's not a that's not a ceremonial issue, that's a moral issue, and God has his reasons for it. If you're interested, listen to my message. It's online on Acts 15. Um, In Acts 10, the Lord Jesus gives Peter a vision, where he's up on a rooftop, and it's about lunchtime, and he's hungry, and he falls asleep, and he has this vision of all these different animals that are unclean that are in the vision. And And the vision God speaks to him, he says, take and eat. And he says, Lord, how can I? I can't eat anything that's unclean. Again, going back to those passages in the old covenant. And God makes it very clear. No, you can eat anything. I'm giving you permission. Now, God was teaching more than just clean and unclean meats on that. The major thrust of the passage is that he's not to view Gentiles through a different lens than he would a Jewish person, that uh, God welcomes all those who fear him And so, of course, he wants them to go down and meet Cornelius and his household and to share the plan of salvation with him. But God never uses an illustration that has theological error in it. Whenever God gives an illustration, he always uses truth to teach truth. So, God doesn't use an illustration giving Peter permission to eat anything, even the unclean animals to teach that Gentiles are not to be viewed in an unclean way. God uses truth to teach truth. So Acts 10 would be another central major passage. And of course, uh, the one that Jesus himself gives in, in Mark 7, I just turned there, and after he called the multitude to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And when leaving the multitude, he had entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus, he declared all foods clean. Couldn't have a more clear, plain, pointed statement than that. Um, And he went on to say that which proceeds out of the man, uh, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds the evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders adulteries, etcetera, etc. Cetera. All these evil things proceed from within and defile a man. And so of course there were people in that day who were trying to build a righteousness before God by their uh, outward behavior. And again, Jesus point is, look, you, you can have all the outward formations correct. That's what the Pharisees were known for. And so on the outside they were whitewashed tombs, but inwardly they were dead men's bones. Uh, the, the, the problem was an issue of the heart. And so, again, under the Old Covenant, God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, the way he deals with his people at different times in human history does change. And so we don't stone people today for adultery. They did under the Old Covenant, under a theocracy. Uh, we don't follow the dietary laws uh, because God doesn't mandate those laws on the church. He's declared all meats clean. Uh, so there are many ceremonial laws that have been either fulfilled in Christ or ceremonial laws that uh, are no longer binding because the distinguishing factor on the New Covenant believer is the work of the Holy Spirit within the believer. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one.
0: 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl if you have a question. And our next caller would like you to uh, address the following. Where was Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace?
1: Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. So it would be purely an argument from silence for me to speculate and to say, well, I should." I say we could speculate, but that's all it is, is speculation. But for me to be dogmatic would be very foolish. My guess is, is because God makes him uh, through... His uh, godly behavior, a leader in the kingdom, is that he's out on the king's business, that he's out uh, doing work on behalf of King Nebuchadnezzar as his representative. Uh, So that's where I suspect he is, but the Bible doesn't say. We do know that obviously he was not there on the day those three Hebrew men were thrown into the
0: uh, fiery furnace. But good question. Let's go to our next one. All right. Our next caller's family attends one church, but they are allowing their daughter to be acting in a program at a church that is Cooperative Baptist. They would like your advice on whether this is a good idea personally, I don't think it's a good
1: idea. It's a great teaching opportunity, but it's not a good idea. You say, why, Pastor? Well, because there are certain things that God tells us that we are to separate from other believers on. Certainly, there have been Christians who have uh, created uh, separation, so to speak, on issues that, that God doesn't really make, issues of separation. Uh, you know there are some Christians, for instance, who believe in a pre tribulational rapture, like myself. some believe in a mid tribulational rapture, some believe in a partial rapture that carnal Christians will be left behind for the tribulation period to get their lives in order and to purify their lives, and some believe in a post tribulational catching up um, so Christians differ on that. all true Christians believe, however, that Jesus will literally physically bodily return to judge the living and the dead. But there is a doctrine on biblical separation. And I know that sounds very narrow-minded today, you know, for you to speak out um, and differ with a Christian on anything, you're considered, you know, backbiting and divisive and everything else. But, but God's word is very clear. Uh, there are a number of passages that teach this. Um, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him, so that he may be put to shame. Okay. Wow. That's that. That's pretty uh, straightforward, Paul. That you would give such an admonition that there's a place to actually separate from a person and to have nothing to to do with that person? Whoa, good night. That, that That sounds rather narrow, Paul. It's not narrow, it's wise. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. So from Paul's perspective, there is some non-negotiable teaching. And if someone deviates from that teaching, then you should put your eye on them. So Cooperative Baptists, let's take them as an example since the caller asked specifically in reference to them. What was their foundational starting point? Well, a guy by the name of Cecil Sherman. I remember Cecil Sherman debating, not debating, he was actually on Nightline in the 1980s. Uh, Ted Koppel was interviewing him. And was, uh, Dr. Criswell, the pastor of First Baptist Church, was also on. And Cecil Sherman was holding up the Bible, shaking it and saying, this book is filled with mistakes. And then he was quoting some uh, so-called errors in the Bible. Um, and of course, those were the turbulent years in the Southern Baptist Convention where you had basically some moderate to liberal theologians who were, had infiltrated the convention and the seminaries and a number of schools and had subtly, slowly, carefully uh, taken over. And so the convention was going in a different direction. There was about a billion dollars in assets that were at stake in terms of land, buildings, hospitals, and everything else and So the conservatives said, "Look, this was uh money given by hard earned sweat blood ties of of hard working Christian people, and We need to protect this and So they organized uh two men met together one weekend in Houston, Texas, in a hotel a uh, guy named Judge Pressler, and uh, another gentleman by the name of Paige Patterson. And they said, let's let's get the message out to the average guy in the pew, because if you tell the average guy in the pew, do you believe in biblical inerrancy, he doesn't have any idea in terms of what you're speaking about. But if you say to him, do you know that there are people in our seminaries who believe that there are mistakes and errors in the Bible? There, there are people who believe that? Yes, there are. And unless you get to the convention this year and you vote for a conservative president, who doesn't believe that we're going to lose our denomination. And so they did that over the course of a decade, And because each president was able to appoint so many new board members. And once the board members changed, everything changed. And so, for instance, at Southeastern Seminary, when my father-in-law went to seminary, I remember reading a book there, Why Abortion Was Acceptable and Correct, written by a professor at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, Why did he believe that? One, because he didn't believe in biblical inerrancy. And so once the board changed at Southeastern Seminary, half of the faculty resigned. One third of the student body left. Why? Because they had to sign a statement saying they believed the Bible to be the infallible, inerrant word of God. Cooperative Baptists at that point realized they lost And so they started a new denomination called Cooperative Baptist. Sounds kind of Southern Baptist because there's a program within the SBC called the Cooperative Program. And so they said, well, we organize ourselves under the lordship of Christ and you don't have to believe in biblical inerrancy. Listen, that's heretical. Uh, Paul taught the doctrine of biblical inerrancy in his uh, New Testament letters. And so for someone not to ascribe to biblical inerrancy, is to uh, depart from the plain, clear teaching of Paul. And Paul says that, listen, when someone does that, you're to turn away from such a person. Because every major Protestant denomination that at some point said, you don't have to believe every word is inspired, gradually drifted. So like, for instance, United Methodists and the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, both denominations said, Uh, the Bible is not infallible. It's inspired, but not totally. It's inspired in spots. And I guess you have to be inspired to spot the spots. And so, oh, this verse I like. I think this is inspired God is love. This one that says God is a consuming fire. I don't think that's true. And so you become a judge of the Bible rather than allowing the Bible to judge you. This is not a minor thing. This is a major thing. Cooperative Baptists do not believe in the infallibility of the Word of God. And of course, with that comes the gender issues, and Dr. John Hanna, probably the foremost church historian who's alive today, um, has done some great work in tracing in the history of the church how liberalism at different times has entered into the church. I don't know if he's put that in book form yet, but I I took a course with him at Dallas Theological Seminary that's just premier. And uh, he's just so well versed in the history of the church and the history of denominations in America. And so, first there was a denial of biblical infallibility. Then there is a denial of traditional gender roles. And so, uh, another second major premise of Cooperative Baptists is they deny. Uh, the complementarian view that's taught in Scripture that men and women are equal, but they have complementary roles, that their roles are not identical. They hold to the egalitarian view, so they think women should be preachers. Listen, every Protestant denomination that moved in that direction eventually became liberal and apostate. And so United Methodists for the most part today, is an apostate denomination. Presbyterian Church, United States of America today, for the most part, is an apostate denomination. No longer preaching the gospel, actually ordaining people who don't even believe in the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where cooperative Baptists are going. Listen, in this state alone, they are working in conjunction with the Lutheran Theological Seminary, LTS, in Columbia south carolina you don't want to know what those liberals believe it'll make you blush uh but oh they want to coordinate with them and encourage people to go to that seminary and now they're infiltrating the campus ministries so like at clemson university there's a cooperative baptist uh program there is at usc columbia and so forth and these young baptist kids who maybe come out of conservative churches and they think oh here's a baptist group i need to go to it um you know they go to it, and they're getting exposed to liberalism. It's dangerous. So you need to teach your children that there is a time to separate. So I think it's very unwise to send them there. It's not a good idea, but it's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And our next uh, email, uh, which came in at tbl at asks uh, the following. Uh, Person writes, I've always been taught that the languages of the original scriptures were Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. However, I have never been able to determine exactly which books of the Bible were written in which language. This question arose in my Sunday school class last Sunday. Can you help?
1: Well, um, you're right. There are three languages the Bible's written in, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. When you think of the New Testament, just think of Greek. Uh, it's virtually all Greek with a couple of sentences that are in Aramaic, uh, one that we'll often quote at this time of year, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that phrase, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, is in Aramaic as a couple of other words, uh, Abba, Father, Abba, is an actual, actual Aramaic word. It's also a Hebrew word, too. So if you go to—you're uh, uh, around Jewish people that speak Hebrew only, um, they won't say Daddy. They'll say Abba. Uh, but it's actually, uh, in terms of its etymology, its roots are in Aramaic. And there are some Aramaic words that came into Hebrew, modern-day Hebrew, just like there's a number of English words that came out of Latin into modern-day English. So, think of the New Testament, it's all Greek, just a couple of uh, sentences that are in Aramaic. Now, the Old Testament's a little bit different. There are two books in the Old Testament that have sections of them that are in uh, Aramaic. So, the Old Testament, you know, um, I forgot how many, 23,000 verses or something is in Hebrew. There's about 250 that are in Aramaic. So, we're just talking about a, a minute portion Uh, There are two books where you will find Aramaic. One is Daniel. The other is Ezra. Um, Daniel 1 is all Hebrew. When you come to Daniel 2, um, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. And so beginning in chapter 2 all the way through, let me just look here, um, through chapter 7, that's the Aramaic portion. And so chapter 1, basically Hebrew, the first three verses of chapter 2, Hebrew 2, 4, all the way through the end of 7, Aramaic, and then in 8 through 12, again, it uh, goes back to Hebrew. Why Aramaic? Well, because the Aramaic portion of Hebrews deals largely with God's plan for the Gentile nations, and Aramaic was the trade language uh, much like uh, in the 19th century, French was, and in the 20th and 21st century, English was. It was the international language of the day. And so when you wanted to communicate to a broad base, then you switched at that point to the international language. The international language of the first century was Koine Greek, Common Greek. And so the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. The Hebrew scriptures were written largely to Hebrew people, but they also knew Aramaic especially after the time of the deportation. Uh, If you remember, the kingdom split. Originally, the the kingdom is uh, united for 120 years under its first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Each of those men served 40 years, 40, 40, 40, 120. The next 345 years, the kingdom is divided. Uh, There's a portion of time when the northern kingdom uh, is uh, the ten northern tribes called Israel, two southern tribes called Judah after the larger of the two, Judah and Benjamin. And uh, the northern tribes are carried away by Assyria. The southern tribes are carried away by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel's living in that time frame. And people learned uh, and began to develop other languages, especially Aramaic, because again, it was the trade language. The other book in the Bible that is written in Aramaic, or has portions of it in Aramaic, is the book of Ezra. And again, you would expect that when you come to, um, let's see, chapter 4 of Ezra, you see a number of different letters that are written. The letter to King Artaxerxes, uh, his response. a decree written by Darius the king and Belshazzar and all these different folks are interacting. And again, the trade language of the day is Aramaic. So in chapter 4, 5, and 6 are the Aramaic portions of the book of Ezra. So you have two books in the Old Testament that contain Aramaic, Daniel and Ezra, in large be- because of those are the areas that are either written in trade languages that is absolutely of necessity that it be communicated in Aramaic so that everyone can understand in the international language, or for other reasons. Again, what's interesting in Daniel is God God cares about Gentiles, and so he wants to highlight it in Aramaic so that a Gentile of the day could could understand. Great question. Uh, Let's go to the uh, next question. All right, very
0: good. Daryl from Savannah would like to know, what do you think of the new movie called The Hunger Games? Mm. I know it's a craze.
1: I don't know a whole lot about it, but my wife and I were in discussion um, in terms of in the car um, recently, and she was reading to me the substance of the movie. To me, it's a very dark theme. I don't have to see the movie. I don't want to see the movie. I don't have to see the movie to know that it's evil. But you see, we live in a day when people can't spot evil. Listen, what a dark theme, Kill, children killing children, and that people want to be entertained on that kind of stuff. Uh, that's a dark theme, in my opinion. That's the spirit of Antichrist at work. Listen, uh, Satan is desensitizing a generation of people to violence. People can watch violence and not be moved by it. And so, for millions and millions of Americans, it seems Christians included, to want to go and entertain themselves in a movie whose theme is children killing children. If that's not the spirit of Antichrist at work, I don't, I don't know what is. Uh, but listen, solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have, dis- have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's the problem of the modern-day American church. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews makes that statement in Hebrews 5.14 But he prefaces that statement by saying, for this time, you ought to be teachers. There's a sense in which every Christian ought to be a teacher, not in terms of having the gift of teaching, because God doesn't give that gift to every Christian, or serving in the office of teaching, because James says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you'll incur stricter judgment. But in terms of maturity, there ought to be a time, if you're growing up in Christ, there's some basic questions you ought to be able to answer. So for this time, you, you plural, you all, we'd say here in the South, Ought to be teachers, but you have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have trained, gymnasticized. We get our uh, gymnasia is the Greek word. We get our word gymnasium from it. Uh, exercise their senses to discern good and evil. And that's what we lack in the church today, a discernment between good and evil. Listen, what is going to happen during the time of the great tribulation period? Millions of Christians are going to get their heads cut off. I mean, millions an untold multitude that John compares to the sand on on the seashore. That's a lot of folks who are converted during the time of the great tribulation. Millions of people. How how are folks going to pull that off? Can you imagine cutting off someone's head? You say, like, "Oh, don't get gruesome, Pastor Brogy. It's going to happen in the millions, and there's going to be millions of people who are going to help. And people are going to be so desensitized to violence that they'll be able to participate in such gruesome things. Listen, the Bible compares the second coming of Christ to his first coming. He came into a dark world as a bright light. The world in the first century was an evil, fallen, depraved, wicked world. That is what the time frame is going to be like for the second coming. And what did they enjoy well, what did they entertain themselves on in the first century? Well, they would go and watch people be massacred uh, in the coliseums, and that's what people are entertaining themselves on. It's a dark theme it doesn't I don't have to see the movie or read the books to know that it's evil. The problem is is that Christians today lack discernment between good and evil. And you don't want to be training your children up on this filth. Make a wise decision. Let's go to the next caller.
0: All right, we do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yeah, good morning. I was just curious, are there any Jewish holidays that we as Christians should celebrate with the Jewish people?
1: Yes, uh, Passover, and uh, it's we're going to celebrate it this weekend on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Now, we don't call it Passover. Uh, there's a translation of the Bible that was done in the 1600s and 1611, and the Greek word Pascha for Passover is translated Easter. Paul wants to get to Jerusalem to celebrate Easter, the King James says. Um, why did the King James choose the word Easter when the Greek word is Pascha for Passover? Well, again, your, your goal is to communicate. Why did the King James uh, use the word Calvary instead of uh, Golgotha in places? Well, because they're going from a Latin translation of the Bible, and most people, because they read the Latin—the the, the most read translation of the Bible for a thousand years was Latin. And so the church didn't have translations of the Bible that were coming from the Greek and Hebrew scriptures, but from Latin. And so the word for skull is calvarious. And and so it came to, since it's the place of the skull, called Calvary. And so, again, um, we don't celebrate Passover in the same way they do. Why? Because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Paul will tell the church at Corinth. So we don't have a week where for seven days there's no leaven in the home and we uh, celebrate, you know, Passover, it, the, the head of that with a Passover lamb where not a bone is broken and you eat the bitter herbs and so forth. Why? Because that was all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul would go and use those Jewish holidays as uh, teaching tools and as preaching opportunities to win Jewish people to Christ. So, really, the only true Jewish holiday that we celebrate directly in one sense is Passover in the sense that we celebrate the lord 's supper the lord's Supper comes directly out of Passover out of the Passover meal. Jesus is in the upper room he 's celebrating Passover. He reinstituted how it should be celebrated, however, and with the with the uh, with the fruit of the vine and with the bread symbolizing the body and blood of Christ, which is what Passover celebrated. But each of the Old Testament feasts pictured either the first or second comings of Christ or both in terms of what he would actually accomplish as the Savior of the world. So to answer your question, I'd say yes and no. No, we don't celebrate any of the Jewish feasts in the sense and in the way in which they did because all of them were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, yes, we do celebrate them in the sense that they were fulfilled in Christ. So Passover, yes, we celebrate at the Lord's Supper because Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb. The Feast of Firstfruits we'll celebrate on Sunday. So Passover, Jesus uh, died on Passover. He rose again from the dead on the, fir- the, the day of the Feast of First Fruits, which would have been Sunday. And again, um, what did they do at the feast of first fruits? Well, they they brought on that Sunday, the first day of the week, a single stalk to the priest and a handful of grain, uh, symbolizing the harvest that was going to follow. And so Jesus is pictured in that single stalk, and that handful of grain is a picture of those uh, Old Testament saints who are raised. Uh, immediately after christ's death on the cross and then there's a great harvest that will follow in the rapture and in the old testament resurrection at the end of the tribulation period all part of the first resurrection program so we, we celebrate them in terms of their fulfillment but not in terms of uh the mechanics of what they did we don't build booths anymore we don't uh eat a passover lamb We don't carry uh, the first fruits of a harvest to a priest in some temple, not to mention there is no temple. And in the truest sense, uh, the Feast of the Old Testament can't, in many ways, be directly and totally uh, celebrated because there's no temple to um, celebrate some of them, and some of those feasts required actually uh, physical temple. Uh, for their fulfillment to be carried out. That's a great question. Uh, Let's go to the next question or caller.
0: All right. Uh, We have an email email from Mary in Portland, Maine, who would uh, like to know the following. She says, I'm a little confused over when the dead bodies of Old Testament saints were raised after the crucifixion and that it seems to indicate at different times based on your translation. Can you help?
1: Rick, uh, I don't have a computer in front of me, just my Bible, but um, if you could look up, um, let's see, I'm here in Matthew 27, and I think there's only one translation where this is done. Um, it would be verses uh, 52 and 53 in the New International Version, um, and, and again, let me just say, and by the way, this, this question is good. It relates to what the last caller just asked. Because I mentioned the Fist of First Fruits, which, again, it, it's it's uh, it's an amazing day. It started with uh, the first fruits are the very earliest of the crops that come in. I remember a farmer in, uh, calling me one day. He said, hey, my first fruits are in. What do you mean? Well, the, the very first strawberries came in. And he invited me to come out and pick some and with my family. And about three or four weeks later, the harvest came in. And all of a sudden, they all ripened. But there was always this first fruits that came in, and you'd go and you harvest those, and then the real harvest would follow. Well, Jesus is the first one to rise from the dead. Now, there were other resurrections, but not in a resurrected body. Jesus was unique. He was that single stock. But what's interesting here in the New American Standard, and I think virtually every other English translation with the exception of the NIV reads like this, and you're probably Matthew 27 uh, 51 to 53. I'll get you to read that for me in just a second. Uh, but let me read it out of the New American Standard. It would read this way in the King James and any other dynamic equivalent translation. Even most of the flute equivalent translations would render it in this way as well. And there, Again, there are different kinds of translations, some that aim at readability over literalness. Uh, and there's a place for that, and, and that's okay, um, but you lose a lot if you really want to study the Bible seriously, and this would be a classic example where the NIV, in making it readable, uh, misses the fine nuance in a really an important theological fulfillment that God had pictured in the Feast of Fruits. And Jesus cried out again. This is Matthew 27, 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, And the tombs were opened. So you've got this earthquake, and you've got all these tombs that are opened. Wow. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised in coming out of the tombs after his resurrection— They entered the holy city and appeared to many. So here's the scenario. Jesus dies. There's an earthquake. Earthquakes are pretty dramatic in Scripture. When God sends an earthquake, it's usually because he's trying to send a message that accompanies that earthquake. Many examples in Scripture we could consider. But when Jesus dies, God sends an earthquake. And all of a sudden, you've got all these tombs that open. And, boy, that's got to be freaking people out. Uh, you know, if you've ever seen some of these ancient tombs and how they buried people, usually they buried, uh, you know, in these rock formations and large stones. And all of a sudden, you know, a, a one or two-ton ton rock is, is moved and a tomb is open. Oh, look, that's one, that's one of the Old Testament saints' tomb. And then Jesus rises from the dead early Sunday morning and after his resurrection, You have this handful of Old Testament saints who walk around, and apparently they're taken up into heaven at some point. And so, again, that's the picture of first fruits. A single stalk, a handful of grain, and the harvest that is yet to come, and the rapture of the church, and all that takes place in the first resurrection program. Now, the NIV, how does the NIV read? Just read for me, if you will, verses uh, 51 and uh to 53 at the niv
0: all right at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the earth shook the rocks split and the tombs broke open the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life they came out of the tombs after jesus's resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people
1: so um it's a little bit looser there not quite as precise you could read that in a couple of different ways uh, that they actually walked around prior to Christ's uh, resurrection the, in light of the wording there and, and how it's uh, specifically articulated. After his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. And coming out of the tombs, uh, after his resurrection, they entered the city. So it the way the NIV reads it is the earthquake came, uh, the Old Testament s- saints came out, were alive at that point, resurrected prior to Christ, and then after his resurrection, uh, they walk around the city. But that's not what the Greek text says. They're actually not raised in walking around until after his resurrection. So they, they, they separate the two events. And again, they're trying to make it readable, but they're missing a major point. Now they've got people rising from the dead prior to the Lord Jesus, And he's the first to come out in a resurrected body. So it may seem like a small point, but it's a major point. And it's very clear in the Greek New Testament, there's no question how it reads in the Greek New Testament and every literal translation with the exception in the NIV 84 and now the new uh, 2010 NIV reads it rather sloppily, unfortunately. And that's why if you want to study the Bible, you need a more literal translation, because you don't want to miss that fine nuance, because that's a fulfillment of prophecy that God had pictured in the Feast of First Fruits. Anyway, let's go to the next question.
0: All right, our next caller would like to know, what is the difference between predestination, election, and man's will? Well, very often, most people in their thinking
1: bleed together the doctrine of predestination and an election. And so when they ask you, do you believe in predestination? Um. Uh, you know, what they're really asking is, you do you believe that God chooses some people over others to go to heaven? And even Calvin did not blend together predestination and election. Even Jacob Arminius would say, I believe in the doctrine of predestination, but I have a different view on election as does John Calvin. So the doctrine of predestination and election are not the same doctrine. they are two distinct doctrines, even in Reformed theology. What is the doctrine of uh, predestination? Predestination is that doctrine that teaches that the process that God began, God will complete uh, from your calling all the way to a glorified body. And so Paul will argue in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are, and it's articular, in the King James is most precise here, the called, he's talking about a specific group of people, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Well, what is it that God is doing to work all things together for good? Now, we often quote that verse of Scripture, and we, oh, I got a flat tire today, but, you know, God causes all things to work together for good. Hallelujah, give thanks in all things. That, that's a legitimate application, but that's not the original interpretation contextually. What he's talking about in terms of what God causes to work together for good is the start and finish of your salvation because it says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So the doctrine of predestination is God's commitment to make you like Jesus Christ. Everything from the time he works in your heart prior to your conversion to the time he declares you righteous to the time he gives you a glorified body. So predestination deals with God's commitment to make you like Christ. Election, the doctrine of election, deals with God's choosing. In fact, usually the word electos or its verb form is used in the New Testament. To trans, it's translated choice or choosing. And so every biblical Christian, of course, believes in the doctrine of election. The question is not, does God elect? The point of debate that has created great consternation and sometimes even division in the body of Christ is not if God elects, but how God elects. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he elected us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world not so that we can live an unholy life, but that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So God chose us, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world. Now, there are different degrees of Calvinism or uh, how people view that choosing will take place. Some hold to what we call double predestination that God chose some to go to heaven and God chose and created others for the simple purpose of going to hell. Then there is singular uh, election, or again, there I just use the word predestination in the, the loose sense of the word, uh, but there's singular election where it's viewed as there's a massive humanity that is all worthy of condemnation, that's true, and God rescued some based on his sovereign choice alone. That's um, two major views held within those who might call themselves Calvinists, at least as it relates to the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Another way to look at election is that God did indeed choose us, but on a different basis on the basis of his foreknowledge. Where Paul, or Peter, says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen, how? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So, again, a lot depends on how you define foreknowledge. I am preaching the book of Romans chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This caller, when we come to it, I don't know, maybe a year uh, away, but we'll come through uh, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and we will deal in great depth with the doctrine of election, and we'll deal with this word foreknowledge. It's two Greek words put together, pro, ginosko. Uh Pro, we get our word pre, prior. gnosco we get our word gnosis, knowledge. Uh, prior knowledge. I take it on the prior knowledge of God, the Lord saw how men would respond. Now, understand men are dead in sin. And unlike Jacobus Arminius, who taught that man had a spark left within him where he could respond to God independently of God, I think he was wrong on that. I don't think man has a spark left in him. He's dead. You can't get dead men to respond any more than you can ask a guy who's in a coffin to get that smirk off his face. He has no ability So the first mover is God. The question is, does God move on all? I think he does. I think whether through general revelation or specific revelation, God moves on all. But not all respond. That's where free will comes in. So God in eternity past could look down the corridors of time, see how men would respond to whatever form of revelation that God gave them, to whatever work of the Spirit that he was performing on them, and to see whether or not they would believe And so, yes, it says it plainly, you can't argue against it three times in the revelation that before the foundation of the world, God had a book with everyone's name in it who would be saved. Listen, if God didn't know that, God wouldn't be God. God is omniscient. He knew it all, the beginning and the end. He wasn't like wringing his hands when Adam sinned. Oops, I didn't know that was going to happen. Oh, goodness, why did I create man? You know, God's. did it ever occur to you that nothing has ever occurred to God. God is all-knowing. There's never an emergency session of the Holy Trinity. God is sovereign. He is in control. He knows what he is about. In an eternity past, God knew how men would respond. So I I think there are dimensions of John Calvin's soteriology, and Calvinism is a big word, by the way. You know, people say, well, you're a Calvinist. What do you mean? Am I a Calvinist in terms of my doctrine of the church, in terms of my doctrine of Uh, future things, eschatology, in terms of my doctrine of pneumatology, in terms of soteric. It's a big word, and it covers a whole broad realm of theology. But most people think of it just in terms of the doctrine of salvation. Do you believe God chooses some over others to go to heaven? Uh, That's generally what people mean by the doctrine of Calvinism. Now, Calvin had been converted two years when he wrote his institutes. I've read them cover to cover, If you really want to understand what John Calvin believed, read Calvin's Institutes, and you will have a summary of what he taught. Look, I didn't have my doctrine together in two years. Uh, Maybe he was a lot smarter than I am, but I, I don't believe any person in two years would have all their doctrine organized so well systematically that they could put it down. Now, true, he added some pages to it later on, but fundamentally, nothing changed in the Institutes from the first edition. Um, I think Calvin was wrong on some things, just like Jacobus Arminius was wrong. I'm not Arminian. I'm not Calvinistic. I'm a Calvinian. I think there's degrees of truth in both. So I have a real free will. God has to take the initiative because I'm dead in sin. So I can't take any credit for my salvation. Uh, God has to initiate. God receives all the glory for the conversion of Carl Berge or any other sinner. But again, you have a real free will, and you can choose, and you can be stiff-necked and resist the Holy Spirit, as Acts seven fifty one teaches that some of the Jews did with the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart in Jesus' day. Well, there are a number of questions that came in we didn't get to today, but God willing, if the Lord gives us the grace, we will be here again next week to try to answer those questions and interact over them. As always, thank you today for being with us on the Bible line. I hope you have a great day.